Welcome to the All In Your Head podcast, where we get all in your head. We are a mental health podcast focused on anything and everything mental health. We'll have special guests ranging from mental health experts, mental health advocates, and just everyday people with real struggles. We will share laughs, we will share cries, but most importantly, we will have real conversations about mental health. So with that being said, let's get all in your head. Woohoo! Imagine moving to another state away from everything you know and love at the age of seven. Imagine being the youngest of 12 children. Imagine meeting a spiritual leader at the age of nine, not realizing that he would be your lifelong pastor. Imagine losing your faith, making poor choices, living life as you choose. Imagine being blessed with a beautiful son. Imagine lying in a hospital bed, pregnant with your second child, septic, doctors predicting your death. Imagine doctors predicting that your son has received medical interventions during the emergency C-section that will hinder his mobility and that he will likely not be able to live the normal life of a child. Imagine turning back to God, vowing that if you live, you will come back to him and raise your boys in church, teach them the power of God's love and do anything and everything he asks. Imagine God answering those prayers. Imagine fulfilling every vow you made to God. Imagine preparing for Christmas with your children, answering the phone and hearing your niece tell you about a drive-by shooting the night before, asking you to come and get her out of harm's way. Imagine rushing to your niece's rescue, then gunshots erupting again. But this time, it's your children that are in harm's way. Imagine panic as you learn that your three-year-old has been shot. Imagine holding his limp body in your arm as he takes his last breath. Imagine finding out the killers of your child are children themselves. Imagine forgiving them. Imagine thinking your work is done with the words, I forgive, only to find that these words are just the beginning. Imagine realizing what you thought was justice was in fact injustice. Imagine advocating for your child's murderers before the US Supreme Court. Imagine the man who took your child's life asking that you love him like a mother. Imagine meeting the main shooter who is now a man and embracing him as if he was your own son. Imagine forgiveness. It's a lot to unpack there. So I just want to check in with you first. How is it to read that story? I haven't read it in a while. So it's (laughs) it's kind of, uh, (laughs) wow, this is a real awakening right there. Um, Again, like how profound you know, there's a lot that happened there, right? And yes, you know, whatever you're comfortable, tell us what happened. Okay. Um, I, um, being a single mom and um, taking pride in uh, being a single mom and wanting to uh, beat all odds uh, concerning the statistics of 
young black males mm -hmm. without a father. And so there I was with a three-year-old and a six-year-old preparing for Christmas, December 21st, 1995. And we received a phone call on a Thursday night, um, dead of winter. And and that phone call was a call from my niece that was saying there was a drive-by shooting the night before in the Park Hill area. Um, planning to, uh, planning for Christmas as well as Christmas Eve, because my surviving son is six years old, going to be turning seven Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. So the preparation for both things was in the making. And, uh, I told her I'll come down, grab her daughter, which was three years old. And she um, was reassuring me that she was ready to leave this residence as well mm -hmm. because there was a shooting the night before. So I said, okay, I'll come down and get your daughter and uh, any other kids that are there, they can come back with me to Aurora. And so they're being uh, taken out that evening and going down to Park Hill, um, my boys were in the back seat of the car and uh, I had another cousin, 21 year old cousin that was in the car with me and another niece, 17 in the back seat with my boys. Uh, we go down, circle the block, because uh, I grew up in Aurora mm -hmm. and uh, trying to find this location. You know, we didn't mm -hmm. have GPS back then. <laughs> so circled the block, came up through the alleyway and parked right in front of the window of this of this duplex, thinking it was the driveway because mm -hmm. it was snow on the ground. Yeah. So we pulled up in front of this duplex and um, uh, I walked in to uh, get my niece. And uh, when I walked in, the home was filled with young girls and kids. Mm -hmm. and so I was saying, you know, you all look too comfortable to have had a drive-by shooting here last night. And so I said, show me where the bullets uh, were, you know, are here in, in the home here. And uh, so we went to the window and uh, she showed me where the blinds were shot, where the window was shattered. And right when I stepped back away from the window, shots begin to ring out. So I grab her daughter, we get on the floor and uh, everything is a hush um, after a few minutes of gunshots coming to, through the home. Yeah. My 21 year old cousin that was outside, she came and opened up the door. Uh, my family name is Bunny. She's the bunny, they shot up the car. Mm. And I said, they shot up the house too. Everybody was checking each other in the house. Everybody was okay. So I assumed everybody was okay outside. Yeah. And so I grabbed her, my three-year-old niece, which is the same age as Kason, my youngest. I run to the car and um, uh, we drive away. And uh, two blocks from where we were, where, where we drove away, my 17-year-old niece is in the back seat that came down with us checking my boys. Uh, Calvin, are you okay? That's my six-year-old. Mm -hmm. He says he's okay. She goes to get Kason and he's not responding to her. She picks him up and then she starts screaming. Mm -hmm. Kason is bleeding and she's, her hands are up like this and I'm seeing the blood and I'm in the front seat. And so my cousin just had to throw the car and I had to throw the car into park because my cousin couldn't stop. 
and uh, she was just in hysterics. And um, I get out, we stop the car, and uh, this was two blocks away from the incident itself. And I threw the car into park, and uh, we saw some people out front. And uh, I get out, I grab my boy from the back seat. I begin to walk with him, and he's still breathing. And um, he's, I'm holding him, and I'm talking to him and saying, you're going to make a big guy. Mm. Uh, mommy's here yeah. and uh, I'm holding him and uh, we're just walking around in this yard and then um, the people let my my uh, my family come in and make the calls and uh, they called they um, they called 911 called the church called the family and there we were I walked into the people's home case was still breathing mm-hmm few minutes later, uh, the people in the home where we were standing, they heard my niece on the phone saying Biscuit had been shot. That's my three-year-old Kason's nickname was Biscuit. Mm. And she said, Biscuit has been shot. And the people's home we were standing in begin to scream and saying, shot, get out of my house. Oh, man. Get out of my home. And so right before I was getting ready to walk out with my son in my arms, paramedics came into the home. They busted into the home right when the paramedics wanted to take him. His last breath in my arms. He took his last breath. I handed him over to the paramedics and they laid his little body down and they put a tube in his mouth. And I asked them, are you going to be able to revive them? And they said, we're going to sure try. And um, they took him on. And then when I looked down, I was covered in blood. Yeah, (laughs) I was covered in his blood. And from my collar all the way down to the hem of my dress was just, I was just soaked in his blood. I still, while I was holding him, I had no idea where he was shot. Mm. Um, I never did take him away from me. I remember trying to put his tongue to the side so he could breathe. Mm -hmm. And I'm still talking to him, letting him know mommy's here and that uh, people are coming to help. And um, when I looked down, once the paramedics took him and I was you know, my clothes saturated with blood. I I asked the people in the house to give me something to cover up with so I can go and tend to my yeah. oldest son. Yeah. And um, so they grabbed a, comf- a comforter out the back. I covered myself up and I go outside to the, um, to outside where everybody's there. Family is just, just a lot of people outside. I couldn't imagine how they got there so soon. Yeah. And um, there goes my son standing there and uh, my surviving son. And uh, I'll never forget the look on his face, just confusion about, you know, what is actually, um, what actually just happened. I look at him and I tell him, brother's been hurt and uh, we don't know who did it, um, but we have to stick together uh, because it's just you and I and mm-hmm. all we have is God. And yeah. so we will we will make it through this. 
and uh, and he looks up at me and says, "Okay, mama." And so that was the uh, that's the first part of actually what happened. They took us all to the police station. Uh, my family came, so they went straight to the hospital. Myself, my niece that was in the car, the 17-year-old, and then my 17-year-old niece that called me down there. Uh, we all went to the police station. Uh, my 21-year-old cousin that was in the car also. So they questioned us for two hours. Mm. Um, my cousin was able to see the color of the car and how many people was in the car. And she was able to testify that, um, seeming that they were still in the car and listening to music waiting on me to come out with my niece. So she was able to tell them and um, they knew something that I did not. And that was that um, the police knew something that, that we did not. And that's why they kept us down there. Mm. That Quezon didn't make it. Mm. So they 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 came in victim assistance came in two hours later and told me that uh Quezon is dead yeah i'll talk a lot of, on this podcast about trauma and people recovering from trauma and you know that's about as a traumatic days you can have right yes absolutely and so how did you you know i imagine that the first couple of days are almost just like a blur and maybe even in shock. But how did you make it through just those first couple of days of, of, of this happening? We talked about forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, the same night that Kaysan was shot and that he passed away, once we left the police department, uh, we went to the hospital and on our way out of the police department, victim assistance, they came to me first, then they went to my cousin and then to my niece. Mm-hmm. I can hear in this police de- in, in the police station, my cousin screaming, bunny, bunny, biscuit's dead, biscuit's dead. And it's like a big echo in this police department. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I felt this strength come over me Mm. like I needed to get to her. And when I opened the door, she's coming down this hallway there and she's screaming and she's just, and I told her, I said, I know they told me. And she's like, what are we going to do? He's gone. And, you know, so I felt like I had to get to her and uh, comfort her. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did uh, to have her to calm down. We go to the hospital and I remember when I walked into the hospital, um, at that time it was Denver General, the walls were covered with friends and family and they're all whispering when I walked in. And my brother walks up to me and says, do you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, yes, I know. So he turns around to everybody that was standing there and said, she knows. And uh, everyone sighed of relief that they didn't have to tell me that Kazan yeah. was dead. They said that the look that I had on my face was a glow and that they didn't think that I knew because of the way my countenance looked. Yeah. And so my brother said, get to 
our sister, and she was shaking uncontrollably. And I hugged her and she stopped shaking. I didn't know what was taking place at the time. Um, I were there at the hospital. We must have stayed three hours or more down there. By the time we left the hospital, I went to my mother's home. And that night, everyone was there and I needed to get away by myself Mm -hmm. because I was just, I was just lost, Um, lost for words, Mm -hmm. loss of understanding, just lost. And so I got away into the restroom, uh, was the only place I could go where no one would, could interrupt me as far as me expressing myself and going into prayer. So I said, let me just go into the bathroom and get away from everyone. So when I went into the bathroom, I'm sitting there and I feel myself moaning in agony. I could, I could just my whole body and I felt myself moaning and all of a sudden I hear my mother in the bedroom praying and she's saying, Father God, dispatch the angels to find out who killed my baby. And that's what I hear her say. Mm-hmm. And within myself and aloud, I'm, I'm feeling this, I said, God, I don't even care who killed my baby. Did this just really happen? Yeah. It's like, it it was just unreal. It was just, like you said, shock. And to where I'm just like, was this really a reality? And I'm moaning. All of a sudden, I felt a presence in the bathroom with me. Mm -hmm. I heard a voice. And the voice, it was a question and a suggestion at the same time. The voice I heard said, will you forgive? As if to say, have you considered forgiving? And I said, God, is that you? Yes, I'll forgive. And right at that moment, my thoughts are beginning to wonder, wow, These must be some awful people that God is asking me (laughs) to Hmm. forgive them. And I just was just taken back and that was it. So I came out of the bathroom. I went to lay down that evening. Calvin was already asleep. I had a vision that night, um, actual vision. I wasn't, I wasn't asleep. I saw Kason in this home where we were standing and I looked up and he was on at the ceiling of this home. And he said, mommy, mommy, here I am, mommy, here I am. And I could hear his voice clearly. And it was like when he took his last breath in my arms, like he was still there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so that was the, that was the, vision that I had that night. I went to sleep. I woke up the next morning to reporters 
um, at that time, Rocky Mountain News. Yeah. And he says, has the district attorneys called? Um, has anyone given any leads about who uh, was the shooters who has done such a horrible thing? Um, I told him, I said, we haven't had any calls yet. But on one thing I do know is that I forgive them. Jeez. How, and, how does that happen, Charlotte? Like, and I'm fighting off tears. I'm glad I'm wearing glasses because you can't tell. But, it's, you know, so, so many things going on. Chills, tears. Like, how, how do you do that? How do, this is day two. This is, the set, this is day one, right? This is the next day. That, that's right. This is so the how, next day. How are you already there? That, that, that blows my mind. I'm telling the reporter the same thing. I'm telling him, I said, I forgive. And he says, what do you mean? He said, you just told me that no one is called. You don't even know who these people are. And I said, I don't know, but I said yes to forgiveness. And I told him about the visitation yeah. and the voice. And there the story was on the front page of the news that Sunday, mother of slain toddler forgives and no one's been apprehended. It was a, it was a divine experience. Yeah. It was a, the way that I see it, it was a, the miracle of grace to forgive. And it happened instantly upon my response of yes. That's crazy. You know, there's people who can't even forgive their neighbors because their dog poops in the front yard. And you, we're talking about forgiveness of people you don't even know yet who killed your son. Yes. What did that do for you? How did that change the way you looked at the situation, the way you responded to the situation? I grew up Christian. And, you know, we go our own way, you know, after we get a certain age. And at the birth of Kason, I had rededic rededicated my life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but something to this magnitude, you're never, you really never feel like you're ready for. Yeah. And, let alone <laughs> forgiveness in this matter, you know? And so it, I will say that I'm just like you. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm on the outside looking in and saying, wow, <laughs> you know? And so that me being an instrument chosen to do such a divine supernatural expression of forgiveness is just a something that I would call a gift because I would not want to be on the side of hostility, mm. anger, yeah. resentment, yeah. retaliation, just, just bitter uh, to be on the side of forgiveness yeah. is such a gift. And it's such a, reprieve of pain yeah people have difficulty with forgiveness and oftentimes the reason why they have difficulty is because they don't feel like the other people deserve it or they haven't earned it you didn't even know the people yet right absolutely but what we tell people that's really important in regards to forgiveness is it's not about the other person they, they can benefit obviously i'm sure we'll talk more about as you got to know the people who did this and they can benefit, but forgiveness 
is more about you and it helps you to let go of anger or resentment. And there's a lot of research, a lot of research on forgiveness and those people who are not able to forgive and hang on to that anger, hang on to that resentment, have more depression, have more anxiety, more physical health problems. And so there's, there's a lot of benefits to forgiveness besides, you know, just the act of forgiveness. Walk us through, at some point you found out who did this, right? Yes. And did that change your forgiveness? No, it did not. It uh, actually uh, confirmed it and it, um, it pretty much gave the, um, made things make more sense for me. Mm -hmm. Um, three days later, there was a 2,500 calls came into the police department. There was a particular call that came in that pretty much was the, the conversation, the, the tell all Mm -hmm. that really brought everything together for the police department. There was a lady that called and said, I told those boys, if they did not bring back my pit bull puppies, I was going to tell that they killed that baby. That was the phone call Mm. that pointed out who they were, where they were. And I thought, what a broken community. Yeah. Wow. That hurt. (laughs) Yeah. That um, it came to that. So once they found out, they were able to apprehend two of the boys. um, And then one turned themselves in. Yeah. All of this was on the news as they showed them going, get into the cars, handcuffed and all of these, all of these things. Well, come to find out there were two 15 year olds and a Mm -hmm. 16 year old that blew me away. I could not believe that children had access to guns. Yeah. To weapons of mass destruction is what I I see. Yeah. And that, that was so heartbreaking to know that this was the state of affairs for us now. Yeah. These are kids, right? These are, these are, these are kids. Babies. Yeah. (laughs) Babies who took the life of a baby. That's right. right. That's right. And this situation is very traumatizing, but it didn't stop, right? Because now you have to go through the trial. And I know that situation usually lasts months, sometimes years. You know, I, I have a, uh, my niece was killed uh, when she was four. And so there's the same process. Like when, when, when there's a death is very traumatizing, but it continues to be traumatizing because you go to court, you hear testimonies and different things like that. So what was that whole process like? Here we are at, this took place December 21st, 1995. So December 24th, I had to have Calvin's birthday. He's oh, turning seven. Yeah. Um, then we had Christmas on the 25th and then, uh, we had to bury Kason. So that was on the 28th. So we had all of this going on and the three boys had been apprehended. Mm -hmm. And now it's time for a pretrial hearing for the main shooter. So we have two shooters and one driver. Uh, the main shooter, uh, is the one that took my son's life. We have a pretrial hearing coming up. This was February of 96. Yeah. There we are 
at the courtroom. I'm there with my attorney, with the DAs, and I walk into the courtroom and standing across the room is this little kid shackled and he turns around and I say, oh my God, he's just a baby, Mm -hmm. just a kid. All of a sudden, Jamie, it was like his chest opened up and I could see it. I could see his heart Mm. and I'm looking at him wondering what is this I'm looking at (laughs) and what type of vision is this? And I feel this compassion and he's looking straight at me. I'm looking straight at him, but I'm looking at a heart that is full of compassion. And I'm not understanding if this compassion is coming from me or if it's coming Mm -hmm. from him, but I feel this total compassion for this kid. And Mm -hmm. I didn't do anything with that. I just, I I witnessed this Mm -hmm. and I didn't say anything. It's like, you know, we're talking about another supernatural experience, you know, that was new to me. Yeah then that's, that's it. So now we're getting scheduled for talking with the DAs. They're letting me know that this particular person is the one that's responsible for Kaysan's life and um, uh, taking his life. And they're going to use him as an example Hmm. and that he's considered the worst of the worst. And that these gang members that are here in Colorado, we're getting them off the street. Mm-hmm. And this is, he's one that we're going to use and we're going to give him a life sentence. Yeah. So I'm telling them, okay, because I didn't know, I actually thought that a juvenile would go into a juvenile facility mm-hmm. until he was an adult. Yeah. That's, that was my understanding. And so I was like, they're doing their job. So yeah. my job was to make sure my surviving son had a mother that was present. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and and so that's, that's, these are all the things that if I did not have that experience of forgiveness, my process of healing would not have taken the, 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 the route that it mm. took. And so my thoughts were different. Yeah. My thoughts, I didn't have to worry about looking upon the face of these kids that took the life of my baby and say, I want you to rot yeah. in hell. I want you to go to jail. I want them to lock, lock you up and throw away the key. I didn't have that feeling on the inside of me. I really didn't know what I felt. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but I knew that I had... I knew that I had a relationship with God, but I had no idea the outcome of what had just taken place in the bathroom. (laughs) The confirmation when I walked away, Jamie, when I looked at him, it confirmed the yes in the bathroom. So when I looked at this young boy, I looked at him through the eyes of Christ Mm -hmm. and that compassion was coming from my heart toward him. And it, revealed to me who he was because his heart was full of compassion as well. So I was able to see him for who he was, not for who they told me he was. Yeah. Cause the other side of that is justice, right? There's plenty of people in that same situation that like you were saying, they'd be 
give him the max, right? Whatever the yes. max is, give it to him um, yes. because that's what he deserves. He deserves the max. That's yes. that's just. That's fair. But you're that's offering, just, but you're offering just, a different side. Fair. You're you're offering uh, a side of forgiveness, which which turns into compassion, right? Yes. And then that and that changed the way you looked at it. Changed the way you navigated that situation, absolutely throughout the whole trial and even afterwards. So, what did that compassion forgiveness lead to throughout the trial and even after? So we had three trials, Jamie. Mm-hmm. We had two 15-year-olds and a 16-year-old. The 16-year-old was, um, the one of the 15-year-olds is the one that was responsible for taking Kason's life. He turned 16 during the trial process. Mm-hmm. This, these trials were expedited and we had, we finished three trials in nine months. Mm-hmm. Had never been heard of. Yeah, They were able to, sentence the main shooter to life plus 50 years without the possibility of parole. Try him as an adult. The other shooter, same sentence. He received life without the possibility of parole Mm -hmm. plus 50 without the possibility of parole and uh, tried as an adult. The driver, my brother asked the judge to be lenient with him because he turned over all states evidence Mm -hmm. And so he was facing 63 years and he had definitely a reduction of sentencing. And he's, he probably spent maybe 10 years at the most in prison, the driver. Um, he was the one that was 16. Yeah. So they were all sentenced. I felt like they were, they were going to prison. Mm-hmm. They were, they were, they were convicted of the murder. They was tried and uh and sentence and yeah. now it was time for me to start my life right. uh to to the point to where i had to be present for my surviving son was my most important thing in the forefront of my mind yeah at that point it felt like closure it felt like a it felt like closure to the case itself to the case yeah um as far as closure for my healing I knew that I had to heal and yeah. my main objective was to heal well. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to have step with this because it was too crucial yeah. for my life and my surviving son to be functional. Yeah. So I began to embrace the stages of grief, yeah. the five stages of grief at that particular time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now we have the six stages and, <laughs> and, and, and uh, like I always tell people, um, if they would have just asked me then, I would have told them there is six because guilt was the biggest one mm. that I had to hurdle. Yeah. Um, uh, guilt and anger was the one that was most challenging for me. And uh, I had to walk through that and, I will tell you, you were saying being in shock or being numb that took place for an entire year, Jamie. Oh, wow. I did not face any of what happened or talk about it to the point. Uh, it took a whole entire year. And once that year ended, I began to talk about that guilt and talk about that anger and uh, to a friend of mine that she would talk, she would ask me about certain things. And uh, she was a best friend of mine. She knew my kids very well. And uh, she would walk me through this process of 
where this guilt was. And so I would begin to just share, you know, my children trusted me. They had no other, they had no other guardian and um, they trusted me with their lives and uh, I took them in harm's way. Mm -hmm. And so I had to walk through that and talk about that. And um, I would do it. And then there was time she says, you ready to talk some more? And uh, yeah. I would talk through it. And uh, after a while, uh, Jamie, I begin to see another vision. <laughs> I begin to see these big, like a bulb of roots down underground and a tree as a tree that would it begin to unravel like it was a ropes, like coming yeah. apart from this big bulb underground. And that was that releasing of that guilt. It had just start to unravel and ungrip me. And I just was, I just start finding my way coming out of that guilt, yeah. the more and more I expressed it. So we talk about forgiveness and you had to forgive the people who did this and you started that process before you even knew who they were, but it sounds like you also had to forgive yourself. That's absolutely right. And, and in order for me to forgive myself, I had to deal and embrace the guilt, the yeah. thing that had me, that would have caused depression and things mm -hmm. of that nature. So I had to confront that also the anger. So my anger was the fact of that these kids actually had guns mm -hmm. and uh, that they actually went and broke in a home uh, with a family that had left and went out of town to Hawaii, took their daughter for graduation mm -hmm. to Hawaii. And this was in the Denver area. And they, they went in this home, ransacked it. The keys to this car was hanging in the garage behind the door in their off of the kitchen. Yeah. So they stole the car and they went joyriding for two weeks in these people's car. Mm. And then they had took guns. Um, the gun that they took out of this home was in a box under the bed, was purchased in 1970. There were bullets and a gun. No one had ever used the gun. That was the gun that killed Kason. Oh, man. Also, the main shooter was in court that day, and he was able to run out of the courtroom and evade his court case. And he drives off with his family, mm. and they didn't go look for him. So they figured they'd catch up with him again. Well, that night is when he killed my son. Oh, man. So we're talking about wayward teens, yeah. not having any, any substantial guardianship, being raised by their grandmother. And so anger, anger, and then just the loss, the, the, the grief and the loss itself. Yeah. You know, where are things now? Do you ever talk to the people who did this? Yes. So going through my healing process, I started an organization in 2003 and just uh, really a gang prevention mm. and just really working with those teens. Uh, well, pretty much kids before they went to that route. Yeah. 
did that for 11 years. In the process of this, I heard about restorative justice, Jamie, mm-hmm. and uh, I had had no clue about it. And uh, people began to talk to me about uh, possibility of uh, going face to face with the person that caused you harm. Mm. And so I requested that in 2009 uh, to go face to face with the main shooter and and the uh, co-defendant um, in the Department of Corrections. Well, it hadn't been heard of. And so they had not, uh, they would not allow that to happen. Mm. And so in the meantime, uh, the facilitators and those that uh, experts in restorative justice here in Colorado, we begin to do the work concerning talking to DOC and the executive directors and getting the word out. Well, in the meantime, the attorney that I was working with that does facilitation for restorative justice dialogues became a legislator. Mm. So in 2011, um, he asked me, would I testify on this bill um, as a victim family so that we can make restorative justice law? Well, that was my first experience with legislation and uh, my passion and the things that I wanted to accomplish really gave me the boldness to go and testify before, you know, the commission and everything. And so that's what I did. And uh, we went and we passed the bill at the house. And then we went to before the other committee and it began to pass at at the Senate. And we, you know, so we did the work together and um, state representative Pete Lee, now Mm -hmm. senator and his wife, Lynn Lee, they were, they're my champions because mm-hmm. they they pulled me along. They pushed me along. Uh, they worked with me until we made this happen. So yeah. here we go. Governor Hickenlooper signing it into law. And now we have a pilot program that's going to be opening up. So who did that's they great. choose? Yours truly. <laughs> <laughs> Yours truly as to be the model victim family member mm. that can have the first dialogue in the state of Colorado at the Department of Corrections. Yeah. And then the person that calls offense, um, Raymond Johnson, considered a model prisoner because he had, after four years of going into prison, um, he pretty much changed his path mm-hmm. and uh, and began to do his own self-care and uh, find his faith and, and do what he needed to do for himself. So he was considered. So here we are 11 years after the fact, and uh, we were able to have a victim and offender dialogue, which now they call it high impact dialogue. Mm-hmm. And um, we had that experience. And it took place May 23rd, 2012. And uh, we went face to face. And uh, I had heard from Raymond Johnson in 2009, when he had asked me, would I be his mother? Oh, by way of a card that came through someone, I don't know how it got to me, but when I opened up this card, it was a Mother's Day card. It was t- three character reference letters and his words asking me, could I help him? And would I be as a part of his family? Would I be his mother? So you're telling me that the guy who killed your son is now asking you to be his mother? Yes. He had heard, Jamie, that I had forgiven him. Yeah. He knew I was a Christian. He followed me and watched me 
and uh, he would see me on the news talking. Uh, I was always in the newspaper. Uh, anytime legislation would change, I had a word to say, and they would put me on the front page of the news. <laughs> so he had seen this. And so he felt because he was doing his work and I was doing my work that he could, this would be something that he could ask. Mm. Well, when I first got that card, I said, you know, to myself, I can't answer that. I'm Kason's mom. Mm -hmm. And so in the dialogue uh, that we had and my surviving son, Calvin Mm -hmm. was present also. He was 23 at the time. And uh, we had that dialogue and it was an eight hour dialogue with two breaks. Oh, wow. And we sat at the Department of Corrections and I had my facilitator that was there assisting me. He had his support person. Yeah. And uh, we went through that process. There were six of us that sat at a table. And I said to him, do you remember you sent me a card and you asked me, would I be your mother? And I said, I could not answer that at the time. But today I'm going to answer that. And the answer is yes, I will be your mother. And my surviving son, which is a man of few words, Mm -hmm. (laughs) looked at Raymond and said, you are who I have prayed for you to become. And I accept you today as my brother. And Jamie, that was my miracle. (laughs) (laughs) That was my miracle. This is the and first this first time that I've cried on a podcast and the second and the third. <laughs> <laughs> so Raymond Johnson, I began to do advocacy work, working with an organization, uh, the Campaign for Fair Sentencing Abuse in uh, uh, Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. I started the advocacy work uh, right after our dialogue. And it was a 10 year stretch of work of legislation and travel and blood, sweat and tears. But that blood had already been shed from Mm -hmm. all over me and the tears would not stop and the sweat would not stop. But we changed that legislation that impacted currently 900 individuals that have been released that were sentenced as adults, as kids. And when we look across the nation, I stepped up to the plate and I advocated for Raymond Johnson and Paul Littlejohn, who took my baby's life so that those kids would have another chance at life. And today, uh, Raymond Johnson is 42 years old. He's been released from prison and he's been out for nine months. Raymond Johnson is my son. And uh, for the last 10 years, I've taken care of him as my son while he was incarcerated. Um, The day one that he stepped out of that prison, he has not missed a day calling me. He's not missed a day coming to take my trash out. (laughs) And uh, I cook him a nice meal at least once a month. And he comes over and uh, my surviving son, Calvin, comes over and I feed my sons. Yeah. What a powerful story of forgiveness, of restoration, redemption. What are you doing now for individuals, for the community? Yes. uh, My organization is Colorado Crime Survivors Network. 
can also Google my name, mm-hmm. Charletta with an S, Charletta Evans, and uh, and I could be found that way as well. And uh, additional information about my story and what myself and Calvin, my surviving son, and Raymond Johnson, the work that we're doing. We just had our 10th anniversary of our restorative justice dialogue. We had a great big celebration and anniversary, and it was phenomenal. The criminal justice system turned out for us, and it was mm-hmm. nothing but love. Yeah. And uh, that program was called I Call Him Son. Oh, wow. And that was a powerful event. And it was it was a beautiful banquet um, that we held. And then most recently, just coming back from the campaign from Fair Sentencing of Youth in D.C. with our 10 year celebration, we had a freedom party uh, because we had 900 kids that had been released since the legislative work that we've done nationally. And so we had that celebration also just a few months ago. And it's been um, my work now is uh, I'm a reform advocate uh, for juveniles that uh, are yet incarcerated. We still have work to do. It was a total of 2,500 across the nation. has been 900 released. There were 200 that were present at our party at our freedom party. Yes. And so it was wonderful, wonderful uh, evidence of work that uh, we did not waste our time. And um, so, yes, so my organization, we work, uh, we support crime victims uh, with all sorts of things, aiding them throughout their process of grief, offering counseling support groups, um, victim notification information, um, just helping them fill out their uh, victim impact papers, uh, victim compensation packets, just helping victims along the way. Because one thing I found out when you're dealing with shock after a loss, you are handed this information and you really don't know what to do with it. I remember opening my packet after five years that the victim assistance gave me. And so I had no clue, yeah. uh, mentally not able to even uh, grasp what to do. So we walk through vic- walk victim families through their process and what they need to take care of. Uh, and so that's the work that I do now. We're looking to definitely be, we're community supported. We need a lot of help. assistants, volunteers, grant writers, but we do the work and um, we're here in Colorado making it happen. Uh, I do public speaking across the country and uh, always open for public speaking, sharing the story of empathy, redemption, and forgiveness. Yeah. Charlotte, you're you're an amazing person, an amazing story. I feel blessed to have been able to spend the last hour with you. Thank you so much for, for being on the All In Your Head podcast. You're so welcome. You have just listened to the All In Your Head podcast. Learn more by following Jamie Glick on LinkedIn or by subscribing to the Mental Health Training Camp YouTube channel. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, you can call now or text 988 to get connected to free confidential support. Thanks for listening.